0: Hello, and welcome to Innovation Matters. It is the Sustainable Innovation Podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I am Anthony Schiavo, your host, Senior Director at Lux. As ever, I am joined by my two co hosts, Mike and Karthik. Mike, how are you today?
1: Doing great. Ready to talk some Tim Apple, I guess.
0: Tim Apple is once again in the crosshairs of the <laughs> Sustainable <laughs> Innovations Podcast. Um, I'm sure this is doing real damage to his, the reputation, their brand, et cetera. <laughs> um,
2: how are you doing, Kartek? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I was uh, quite excited to see the, uh, the unveiling of the new Apple products because I have, I'm immersed into the Apple ecosystem. So, uh, but it was not about the products. I would say that caught my eye. nothing special. Are you,
1: are you a real like hardcore Apple fanboy?
2: My so dad you, is a is a stress. big Apple fanboy, but oh, uh, for real? he gets a lot of free Apple products from the company he works for. So that's how I got into the ecosystem. Now I can't get out of it.
0: Being an Apple fanboy is just such like a two thousand and seven coded behavior. <laughs> like I don't understand. It's like how people are like, yeah, it's the year of our Lord twenty twenty three, and I am an Apple fanboy. It's like, what, what is going on? I mean, no disrespect to your dad, but uh, like, <laughs> well, why do we start there? So. I guess Apple—they released a bunch of new products. They released one of the most painfully cringy corporate videos in a while, um, and it, it was all about sustainability, right? It's all about the sustainability of their uh, products. And, and you looked into this, Karthik, so maybe you can tell us what, what's going on.
2: Yeah, I wasn't expecting what they put out. To be honest, I think it was about 20 minutes of their entire one minute, 20, one hour, 20 minute presentation. Sorry, so it was quite a big chunk. Um, essentially, in this part of the video, Tim Cook and the rest of the Apple employees are talking Tim to Apple. Mother Nature. Tim his, Apple. Name
0: is, his name is Tim. Let's just, <laughs> yeah. let's just be clear. Yeah, so What's the position of
2: this podcast. <laughs> all right. Uh, so yeah, Tim Apple, he is uh, talking to Mother Nature, explaining how Apple is moving towards a more sustainable future, how their products are getting more sustainable. Um, their first product they unveiled, which was the Apple Watch, is supposedly 100% carbon neutral. They account for scope one emissions, scope two emissions, and scope three emissions on their products. They're completely moving away from virgin materials. And they also said they're going to be planting a lot of trees. Uh, they're going to uh, you know, build rainforests in Paraguay, uh, or I, I guess they've already built, according to their claims. They also have saved about 68 billion gallons of water since they have introduced this initiative. And this is part of their big uh, initiative called as uh carbon neutral by 2030 um, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. say that all their products are going to be carbon neutral by 2030 uh, which was it's quite a stretch but that's what they said
0: yeah it's it's interesting and i i know i i uh maybe we were talking about this and i presaged uh, the the tim apple was in the crosshairs apple actually is probably the most sustainable electronics maker i mean you can argue that electronics at a baseline is not very sustainable you know, the Apple watch is not really a fulfilling a critical need in human society, but for a lot of their, you know, they're really on the cutting edge of not just the carbon footprint stuff, which is honestly some of the weakest thing they've doing that they do. But in terms of chemical sustainability, they are the first to eliminate a ton of different harmful chemicals. Um, they have a really extensive chemical sort of maintenance list. They also are one of the few electronics maybe the only electronics maker that is actively investing in and giving out loans to their suppliers for their suppliers to switch to green electricity i think they have like over a a 500 million dollar loan program the last time i looked uh to like build wind farms and solar panels in china and stuff so like legitimately apple is probably one of the most proactively sustainable companies in the world in terms of like the structural actions they're doing like not a lot of people are out here like building wind farms for their suppliers let alone for themselves but but tim apple dropped the ball because he's planting trees and this is like the worst (laughs) this is like probably like the worst thing like I, i i respect like okay building rainforest preventing deforestation that is one thing but like Anytime a corporation says we're going to plant X number of trees in response to a sustainability problem, it's just like the stupidest thing in the world. It doesn't actually save that much carbon, if if any. In some cases, it could actually increase carbon emissions overall because the plants will ultimately re-release them uh, if they get chopped or burned down. And it's probably just the least cost-effective like way to actually manage. I mean, it's cheap, but in terms of what it actually does for the environment, it's just it's just really throwing money away and it's it's so stupid so tim apple i know you're a listener um <laughs> knock it off with the plant tree stuff and knock it off with the terrible videos come on what are we doing don't disappoint your mother this is weird it's not good
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: oh my god mike
0: what what do you think you've got the you're rocking the casio uh you know the yeah <laughs> <or whatever, right?
1: laughs> I mean, I do. You know, your your point is right about the, the fact that Apple on on the materials and 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 electricity front has done a lot of good sustainability stuff. I remember being at like a bioplastics conference in like two thousand nine or something like that, and people were saying like, oh, like one of the companies that like, you know, one of the one of the only applications where people are actually like out there legitimately paying a premium for these bio based plastics is like Apple using it in like the the charging cords of the the phones and stuff like that. So that's true. I feel like yeah, everybody's kind of hip to the fact that the a lot of these uh, nature-based tree planting sort of carbon offset uh, solutions are not particularly reliable or credible. I do wonder if we've swung a little bit too far in the in the other in the in the other direction because. Certainly, nature-based solutions, like you said, if you're actually preserving, and the, some of the credits I guess they're doing are based on like preserving wetlands and restoring wetlands and things things like that. There is stuff that you can do that um, on the nature and particularly the land use side that is like legitimately pretty good for for the climate. It's just there's so much, you know, there's so many low quality credits out there in that in that same sort of space that that you know. Like you said, you hear planting trees and you just assume it's BS, but (laughs) you can do some good stuff there. And hopefully Apple is like actually doing their homework and, 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 and really using projects that are more legit on the the nature-based side and that they are, um, uh, you know, uh, monitoring and verifying Mm -hmm. them and and all the stuff that you really need to do. But Mm -hmm. the video is still pretty cringe. (laughs) Yeah I
2: think that's the biggest issue for Apple right I mean even though they're doing all these good it's things cringe. I think
1: they're making exactly <laughs> yeah. the, the,
2: I, I think it would come across as greenwashing rather than anything yeah. else even though they're doing a lot of good things and and they are commendable so yeah Tim Apple I guess is uh, he's on the fence at this point <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of uh, possible greenwashing, we also had some pretty somewhat significant news, I guess, this last week, which is the United Nations, our uh, our globalist overlords, have released the zero draft of the instrument to end plastic waste. It has a slightly longer and more complicated name than that, but basically, it is a very, very initial and very, very tentative draft of this what is potentially a really impactful. International regulation on plastic production as well as plastic waste. You can kind of think of it as a parallel to the carbon emissions regulation that exists. Yeah,
1: and, this uh, is yeah. like potentially the Paris Agreement of plastics, basically. It, yeah, it a big
0: it, big deal. it can be really big. It could be a really big deal. Um, and we got the zero draft, and I don't know. I'm a nerd for this kind of thing. Uh, and it was really interesting. Um, a couple highlights. There's an outright ban or restriction on plastic production in there, not all plastic production immediately, but, you know, there are basically caps in there proposed on total plastic production, along with taxes potentially on primary plastic production, and this is a lot of stuff that like was in the kind of like initial documentation around the, the agreement and that people were discussing. And I was sort of surprised to even see it get this far into the process, right? Like, this is pretty controversial stuff. This is pretty extreme stuff. It treats all plastics as a pollutant, basically, at the source. Um, whereas, you know, the the chemicals industry, and I think people's kind of perception generally, is that plastic, you know, plastic waste is the issue, right? As opposed to just all plastic production everywhere. Um, and it's pretty substantive, right? Like. There's not a lot of materials where we go out and say, yeah, like legally, you know, or internationally legally, you're sort of capped on production, right? Like we don't have this for steel, we don't have this for cement. It, it's it's a pretty shocking uh, type of type of law. Now, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that's but that's <laughs> the thing we were we, we were arguing about this yesterday, yeah. right? Like, uh, how how realistic is it that that's actually going to make it that like legit caps on plastic production would actually make it into to yeah, a final I regulation. Know. I mean, you I know, the it. U.S. is not going to go for that. You know, Saudi Arabia or China is probably not going to go for that. You know, so you're...
0: Even if you put a cap in place, uh, I mean, the U.N. doesn't really have a mechanism to enforce that type of thing. I mean, they barely have a mechanism to enforce some of the more enforceable stuff, like the Basel Convention on the bans on plastic waste trading. Like, the U.S. is still exporting plastic waste to people who will take it because we just don't care. We, we don't follow international law, right? <laughs> I think... There's a couple of things that I would sort of say about it. Like, including plastic production as part of the scope of the agreement is important. It allows us to do stuff like get better documentation and reporting on what types and kinds of plastics are produced and where globally. And it's a step towards, you know, these restrictions, right? Like, you wouldn't imagine the Kyoto Protocol, you know, 20-some-odd years ago, right? that was not a very strongly worded or intense sort of set of actions right around climate and the Paris Agreement went a lot further right it included for example mechanisms for wealthy countries to pay out money to less wealthy countries on the basis of damage caused by climate change um so like climate reparations is not something that you would have expected, you know, but that's like something that we got there, yeah, right? right? Like, it's just, yeah. And it's still controversial and it's a lot of work and it's underfunded and all this stuff, but like that's kind of where we're at with climate is like climate reparations are on the table, the UN is like aware of pushing that kind of thing. So, you know, the fact that we're starting here with plastic bans or, and there's a lot of other, you know, different levels of gradation, right? I mean, it just paints a, a directional picture for where this regulation is going that is Pretty intensive and pretty transformational for the chemicals industry. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think it's always, you know, as with the climate stuff, right? That people are not going to fully, probably fully, live up to their pledges. The UN doesn't have good enforcement yeah. mechanisms, and it, w- and it all would of be that, sick to is see something like that the, does
0: the blue helmet UN soldiers like storming the beaches in like Houston and like. <laughs> like (laughs) taking over refineries that would be incredibly
1: lady (laughs) shutting down yeah crackers probably unlikely probably not gonna happen but i mean i do think it's you know well well company countries like particularly the u.s and you know it's not going to be feel very strictly round by these things like i do think you can be too cynical about it also and say, like, oh, you're saying it doesn't matter at all. Like it does, you know, if a company sign up for these agreements, countries sign up for these agreements, they're going to make some effort to just not completely blow them off, I think. And, um, you know, I'm just, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much of this language they can actually get get through because, I mean, that's the other thing that'll happen. It's like, if, you know, if the U.S. or other players know that they just have no intention of um, following some of these these stronger restrictions, then they're probably just not going to let them get through into the final agreement.
2: Yeah, just a question I had, Anthony, to both of you because you follow the, the chemicals and the plastic space more. So, based on the zero draft and, and my understanding of uh, you know from what I read, was that they're, they're focused on capping. The production of, of plastics, right? And I'm guessing the objective is to reduce production in a way to affect demand. So reduce demand because you know you don't have enough production of plastics. Uh, maybe yeah, I'm wrong in that I mean, assessment.
0: There's a lot of things going on, but part of it is making plastics more expensive, right, relative to other materials. Right. Or particularly relative to reuse. And we're actually going to be talking to a, a the CEO of Muse a startup that is focused on reuse in uh, in a future interview segment, and the UN in their sort of vision of the future, this document called Turning Off the Tab, which is like a long-term roadmap for plastics uh, production and use, they actually see like 30% of plastic uh, being reused, which is like an insanely high figure, right? Because mm-hmm. right now it's basically 0%. <laughs> it's close to 0%. yeah. Um, So they really see that as being where the the direction of the industry will go. And, I mean, they see Mm -hmm. global plastics production basically dropping in half by, like, 2040, you know, like really substantially Mm -hmm. reducing the the total production of plastics, which is a thing that's never happened since plastics uh, (laughs) started being made. The production of plastics (laughs) has always gone up. We've never tried to uh, make the production of plastics go down. There's not a ton of precedent for that kind of industrial action.
1: Not, not a lot of precedent for the production of oil going down either. Though. That's going yeah. to <laughs> yeah. happen.
0: I mean, that yeah. that's the big question, right?
2: What actually got me thinking was, is there going to be a reduction in demand for plastic? Something, I, I guess that should we be the bigger driver than reducing the production.
0: A, a demand flattening for plastic this decade um, mm-hmm. because of recycling yeah. and because of weakness in some of the core markets. Like, Uh, We we, we don't, you know, a lot of it depends on what you think global GDP growth is going to be. And if you are like me and you think it's closer to like 2%, 1.5% and plastic demand tracks a little bit more closely with that, um, that by Mm -hmm. itself could really weaken out plastic demand. And then it doesn't take much recycling to totally eliminate demand growth. You know, you double global recycling, you go 7% to like 14, 15% and um, you, you eliminate demand growth pretty completely. So in a lot of ways, it's easier to get to peak plastics than it is to get to peak oil, um, actually. And, and that could mm-hmm. happen a lot more quickly, in my view. Uh, it just depends on what happens with, like, China in particular, right? Because China was such a huge recycler. Now they're trying to tackle their own domestic yeah. waste. They could end up recycling a ton of their own domestic waste and exporting products with recycled content to, you know, Europe mm-hmm. to the That's you know, like a really, really nice
1: All right, we are back here talking now to adam lytle of sound agriculture um sound is a startup company that's been having um having some really interesting initial successes here in, in developing um microbial biostimulants so maybe adam you can kick us off by telling uh, telling our audience or for those who aren't already familiar with that uh uh, what those are and what's uh, what's been driving
3: the interest in um, in this area. Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So at Sound, we are a biotech company at core. And what we do is look at both inputs and traits in agriculture to create more sustainable food. We actually have uh, a couple different business lines. One is on the microbiome, as you mentioned, where we're distinct from a lot of the biological companies out there that create microbes, actual bugs that go into the soil, and they augment it by adding a few of those microbes that are beneficial, uh, we are a chemistry product that will stimulate hundreds and hundreds of microbes already in the soil in order to do what they do better. And those microbes already fix nitrogen, which is essential for plant growth, and solubilize phosphorus, which is the second most important fertilizer for, for most crops. Uh, as well as a number of micronutrients. And so we're essentially saying, hey, nature works great at this. We're going to leverage it and increase the rate of that natural effect uh, and thus replace up to 30% of the f- synthetic fertilizer that growers have to use at a, at a much cheaper cost. So better for the environment and um, better for the cost structure of growers.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I know we've, we've covered a lot of these companies that do... Um... The microbe-based approaches as you use. So I think it, you know, the analogy that occurs to me, you can tell me if this is fair. It's almost a little bit like a probiotic, right? Where you might take a you know, for for your for your own human gut health, right? You might take a probiotic that has the actual live bacteria in it. What you guys are doing is is instead a little bit more like a like a prebiotic, right? It's you're not supplying the actual bacteria. You're just enhancing the health and the activity of the bacteria that are already already present or the microorganisms that are already
3: present in the soil. Spot on. That's right. That's a good analogy. Another one we like to say, uh, which is pretty accessible for folks is it's like caffeine by the microbes and start <laughs> like caffeine makes us, I'm uh, my coffee here. So
1: yeah, continue. yeah, there you go. Uh,
3: think smarter, faster, uh, maybe run a little harder. Um, we, we do a similar thing for the metabolic activity of the, of the microbes. Um, and you can do that with a very, very, very low volume of chemistry. Uh, so it's a pretty nice, pretty nice use case in effect. Yeah.
1: Now, one of the, I mean, you mentioned that's, uh, you know, better for the planet, better for, for, for costs, um, and, 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 and for the crops, so what do you see as the major drivers of the interest in this from, from your customers? Is it really, really kind of heavily driven by the sustainability either, you know, we want to be able to claim to be more sustainable or we got to comply with regulations, you know, versus more of the more of the cost
3: savings and, and increased yield or output. It's definitely a dual value prop in that regard. So you hit both of them. One is sustainability, one is cost. But um, it, it's primarily cost if you are a grower. Uh, you, you you will care about sustainability, but sustainability means different things to different people. And for them, it's about sustainability of their operation. They're often multi-generational growers who might be fifth generation and want to make sure that it's still around for their grandchildren. And farming is a very difficult industry, both in terms of the work involved and then the, the financial risk. Uh, so fundamentally, the profit and loss and having a good ROI on products is, is the constant battle. And then I'd say uh, secondary for most is gonna be that environmental benefit. And uh, where we come in, and, and it depends on who you ask, some people really care about the water quality piece. Some people care about the soil health piece, um, stopping stopping degradation of the soil itself and topsoil. And some people care about the carbon impact uh, because nitrous oxide coming from nitrogen is 300X more potent than CO2. Um, so, so really, if you abstract from this, you've got your customer base growers who want to do this because it saves money, and it's easier to use. Four gallons of our product replaces a semi-truck of nitrogen fertilizer that comes from natural gas. And, and for a lot of the other interests, government, a lot of the urban centers, is um, agriculture can be a force for climate good instead of climate bad. So it's a nice win-win in that regard.
2: Right. Um, speaking about the win-wins... Uh, I don't specifically cover agriculture. Um, And, you know, as I mentioned, I love eating food. I think everyone lives to eat. But looking at specifically um, an analogy that came into my mind was when I look at agrivoltaics, which is one application I look at, um, all of the ag businesses that want to get into agrivoltaics, their biggest concern is, you know what, I, I don't mind adding solar panels on top of crops as long as they don't affect the yield and the quality of the crops that come in. So when you introduce a new solution like this, um, what's the perception that the consumers, uh, uh, by consumers, I mean, your customers specifically have? Are they thinking about harmful side effects? So what's the first thing that comes into their mind? And, you know, how does your solution address those things?
3: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good analogy. Um, Here, and I think that, off-target effects or the indirect effects is certainly one question. It's not the primary one though, Kartik. The primary one is does this thing work? So is it snake oil or is it really going to work on my fields? Because there's been hundreds of claims to impact yield and agronomics uh, in agriculture. And uh, there's a lot of skepticism because it's not that that they don't work or it's really snake oil. It's that they usually don't work everywhere and there's so many different conditions that a grower usually thinks that his or her fields are, are bespoke unlike anyone else's and so there's a, there's a um, barrier to say how do you prove that it works how do I make sure I'm not losing money in order to get adoption of the entire farm and there there's a few techniques that we've employed that, that tend to work quite well and they're a little different we have a, a performance guarantee um, which is beyond just like words on a box where we actually will cut a check to the grower if it doesn't get them mm-hmm. net positive ROI. And we've done that in the past. Um, we, we had to do it with less than 1% of our sales, which was great um, because the efficacy was so good. And it gets people to buy higher volume because then instead of saying, hey, I'm going to try it on 50 acres, which might be 1%, 2% of a, of a typical production ag farm, mm-hmm. I'll try it on a third of my farm. And then you get the benefit to the grower much faster over a couple year adoption curve while reducing your risk. And as a company that's venture backed, you can get past a lot of the challenges, which are agnews is too slow to get venture capital money.
1: Yeah, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because I was uh I was reading one of our uh colleagues, Deepesh, who you know had written a report about biostimulants a, a few months ago. I was going back and rereading that and Preparation for this interview, and he, uh, he used the exact same words: uh, "snake oil perception" around the around the <laughs> challenge. So that was, that's something people really say out there, right? Oh yeah. Um, I was curious to follow up on that because one of the things I've I've also been been looking at myself a lot over the last, um, you know, last six months or so has been alternative business models in manufacturing and and thinking like agriculture and agricultural chemicals and. You know there's been a lot of interesting examples of that of people who are getting like pay for performance business models or you know, as you said here, you're doing a little bit of a version of that where you're you're offering people the rebates if they don't uh, if they don't see the see the results. Is that something that you've you've thought about or explored into kind of other ways to um, uh, you know get into more explicit pay for performance or um, you know, other business models where you're linking up more with precision agriculture and, you know, kind of charging people by the hectare instead of by the amount of product, right? Um, is that something you've looked at or what do you see as the the challenges with trying to pursue some of those uh, more involved alternative business models?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit on a big um, interest and passion of mine. So first off, I was at Corteva, uh, which is the largest pure play ag company. For several years, leading the digital business um, on the commercial side. Several years before that, I was a, I was a, on the founding team of Granular, uh, which was which was the leading SaaS company for growers. And so we looked a lot at enabling those alternative business models using data. Uh, and. They haven't really worked at scale yet, to be honest. But um, a lot of the bigs have tried them, as well as startups, and it's going to work. It's a question of how or when, because there's so many variables in agriculture more than almost any in other industry. Think of it like a manufacturing plant outside, with all the additional variables that manufacturing has. <laughs> right. There, right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, how do you isolate what causes something? That's that tends to be the key. Um, when also you only have one data point per year because of a, right. season, a single growing season. Two, if you look at both hemispheres. So um, that's the nut to crack. Uh, how how we look at it is first of all we we um, we have a very high and good understanding of our mechanisms of action and how this works because we've used it now for six years in the field. We're not a we're, we're a commercial growth stage company, right? We're we're getting over. 20 million of sales now. We were we passed million acres a couple years ago, so we're one of the top companies in in ag tech startups in terms of scale and revenue and all that. So we have enough heft to actually de-risk this, and we came out with a fertilizer reduction guarantee this year. We're actually just launching it. in the last few weeks, uh, and today at Farm Progress show, uh, which is, which is happening where we will cover up to a hundred dollars per acre of potential yield loss. If you use our product to replace 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus, because it, it stimulates enough to replace at least that. So what that does is it says, I'm going to take away the skepticism and allow behavioral change. And this is for a product that sells for $18 an acre max. So we are, we are underwriting up to more than 5x the value of what we're selling. So now we're not just selling an input anymore. We're selling a solution on the nutrient efficiency side and soil health side that has an embedded underwriting project, that product that we're giving away for free as part of what we're doing because we're so confident in this. And I really want all the companies in the industry to start doing this because it's more incumbent on us who knows our product, our technology, and have the balance sheets and investors to take that risk than it is to ask a family farm to do that when they don't know anything uh, in terms of the product really, and only have 40 chances of profit. So I really think this is the future. I think the trick is how you execute those. We can go into more detail there, but um, we're, we're starting to really scale this on our end at least. Yeah.
1: You mentioned, um, well, I mean, you mentioned the balance sheet for one point. So you, you, you guys, uh, despite, uh, as you pointed out, maybe some challenges with ventures Ventures investing in uh, venture capital investing in agriculture. You've uh, you've been successful on that front. You I think most recently closed to seventy five million Series D. Um, and you know you've also uh, so buyer I think is one of the one of the strategic investors you've 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 mentioned. There's a number of other uh, kind of strategic partners that you have. Is is that you know kind of as you see it for a startup. In this area, is is it really important to be able to work with those sort of large companies and um, to win that trust of the the customers? And um, you know, and what is it that that makes a good corporate partner for you?
3: We are lucky enough um, to have a really great slate of investors and, and capital partners, and that is one of our strengths. Um, I, I should knock on wood, but I say our challenge is more just continuing to scale the business in a way that makes sense and given getting the profitability um, than it is raising money right now because the potential is there this is a 200 billion dollar worldwide market in terms of your 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 tam so it's a huge opportunity on this fertilizer nutrient side and and then also what we're working on with plant breeding gets the investors pretty excited so um, we actually have Syngenta as well as Bayer. We have Wilbur Ellis as Venture Arm, who's the number four ag retailer uh, worldwide. So, And then we've got a lot of pure plays um, like S2G and um, uh, Cultivian and Fall Line and, and a number of others. Um, and and even some uh, of the recent, interest, r- recent entrants who led our last round, BMO Capital and Chan Zuckerberg, coming more from the climate tech angle. So it's a really nice consortium. And I think that's necessary in this space because does take longer than typical software or tech in order to get the impact. It's a physical business with all the challenges we've talked about. And two, it's really hard to fully disrupt the industry. I'm not saying it's impossible, but you actually you literally haven't seen it yet. No one has disrupted agriculture. People have evolved agriculture. So while there might be a day that someone does that, I believe a better tactic is to work with the incumbents and help evolve them faster because they want to work with partners like us who are gonna innovate faster than them and they know it, and then they can bring in that innovation and help scale it. So that's been our tactic. We're we're more of a, uh, call it fast evolve than disrupt mindset. (laughs) And so far so good because we've had partnerships with Syngenta to do this in China. We've got a partnership with Mosaic, which is a top fertilizer company to do this. uh, Look at LATAM. Uh, there's, there's partnerships on the on-demand breeding side with um, a group at Mario and um, others, a lot of others I can't name, both on the food and the ag side. So we're very much a partner-driven approach in addition to selling direct in the U.S.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, because you also have to directly deal with farmers and, you know, customers, uh, even though it's sort of B2B, I would look at it sort of like B2C because, you know, the farmer essentially has to, you know, sell food to people, um, so yeah, I call
3: I call this a prosumer market, not a consumer, because we are not selling to the consumer, but we mm-hmm. it's it's sort of an SMB type, if you want to classify it as a market.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, looking at that specifically, and because this is very consumer centric, um, and this is the Innovation Matters podcast, so just wanted to quickly ask you on your thinking and your thought process behind how you factor in consumer perception. And farmer perception when it comes to you know taking decisions that are in line with sustainable innovation.
3: We we have the consumer who influences all of this, and uh, we use that and um, are responsive to it in terms of the sustainability side fundamentally. So the consumer, while they it's not always top of mind, um, really does care about where the food comes from, from a soil health perspective, there's a lot of truth and increasing awareness that uh, a better nutrient density for your fruits and vegetables is healthier for you. And that comes from healthier soils uh, and nutrition programs. And when you have too many synthetics on your fertilizer side, you actually can kind of kill or depress the microbiome. It, it's like a muscle that atrophies. And that results in worse things for the food itself, as well as the environment. So from a combination of um, broader impact the consumer cares about, climate change, et cetera, water quality, where we will reduce the amount of nitrates and phosphates in water by up to 50%, and then that um, soil side uh, for for plant health uh, and nutrient density, it's a big factor. And that helps us sell because growers recognize their customers are the consumer, and this is a tailwind that's not going to end.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing I was I was curious to ask about on on that front is what you see as and, and how you see uh kind of the policy drivers here, right? Either on the sort of the demand side and incentives for greenhouse gas reduction or or sort of on the supply side, right? There's a big industrial biotech, biomanufacturing push from the Biden administration. Do you do you see those uh, those type of policy moves as as driving this this area forward in
3: in ag? We do absolutely. So uh, as part of the money that flowed through on the Inflation Reduction Act, there's um, there's a lot of climate smart uh, investments from governments. So I think it's at this point up to three billion um, that was allocated for climate smart activities, and that includes nitrogen reduction, given how how harmful that is for the environment. Um, it also includes broader regenerative ag practices of which we are a tool or an enabler because if you can have a healthier soil microbiome and more vibrant microbiome, you can, you can go to full regenerative faster and have, have a healthier um, healthier food food production and everything else we've talked about. Um, so there's monies going through from the federal government. There's also uh, a lot of local money and the county level and otherwise with watersheds at the state level. Because agricultural runoff leads to carcinogens and dead zones and waterways that um, Chesapeake or Nebraska watersheds or Illinois, other areas. So uh, wow. there's different angles for sure. And we we try to tap into those. Um, fundamentally though, I think in terms of scalability, that takes time. So I view that as icing on the cake, not a core thing mm-hmm. that I'm dependent on with our business model.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's... Uh... You know, obviously, with a lot of the things in the IRA, you know, the green hydrogen subsidies or whatever, you're creating these markets that are very, you know, I won't say purely, but very heavily subsidy driven. So, I think it is, it's good. It's a strength that uh, that your uh, your business isn't as as reliant on those.
3: Yeah, I I won't turn it away. I, I wouldn't mind it if they put <laughs> a little more. in ag- I I actually do think it's pretty low in agriculture relative to the energy side and infrastructure. And given the carbon and other impact, it's it's disjointed in that way. So I I, I think to really scale, that is re- more of that is required um, because it is behavioral change. But you know, as a as a private startup, on we're going to do everything under our control to do it regardless of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll be we'll be on the lookout for more more action on that front, and uh, be continuing to follow the. The, the progress at Sound, but uh, thank you very much for the for the time. I appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation, and uh, we'll keep uh, we'll keep in touch. Yep. likewise.
3: Uh, great questions and conversation. Thank you, Mike and Kartik.
1: All right, thank you very much, and we'll talk to everyone next time on on Innovation Matters.
0: Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more visit www.luxresearchinc.com.